but on David, we still have a lot of his life to cover. And so we're going to look at David tonight in terms of the giants that he faced. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, we've already talked about Goliath. Well, Goliath was one of many. There were a lot of other giants besides Goliath in David's story. He faced Goliath successfully as a young man, and we all know that story, how he uh, slung a stone into Goliath's forehead, killed him, and led Israel to a great victory over the Philistines. But that was only the beginning. There were a lot of other giants, literal and figurative, in David's life. And uh, that's going to bring all our thoughts together this evening as we look at his giants. And as we have time, maybe we'll be able to take a little time to think about some of the giants we face. So let's start with the giant disappointment. Of course, we've already seen some giant disappointments in David's life, but this has to do with giant disappointment that we encounter in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we've seen a number of rebellions, and on David's way back from the eastern side of the Jordan River, after Absalom's rebellion, crossing the river back into Jerusalem to reclaim his throne, he faces another great disappointment as he finds division among Israel and Judah. Remember that while this is a nation... It started as a nation of 12 tribes. And there was always a fragile relationship between the 10 tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. And so you see that kind of surface here again in chapter 20. Uh, the loyalties had been split and tested by the rebellion of Absalom. And as I said, David was coming across the uh, Jordan River again. And uh, there was a quarrel between the people of Israel and especially this man named Sheba and his family. Uh, he was a son of Bichri, chapter 20, verse 1 says, a Benjaminite. Remember that King Saul was a Benjaminite. He was a son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. He and his family rebelled against David. Uh, Let's read uh, verses 1 and 2. There happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now why did he get so upset? He got upset over a very small thing. Uh, basically, they all wanted to lead David across the Jordan River. And the people of Judah got ahead of the people of Israel. And by the time Israel showed up to be a part of this procession, Judah had pretty much gotten him across the river. And that's all it was. But it was... A feeling of being left out, a feeling that um, they didn't matter as much to David as the people of Judah, and David was from Judah. 
And so that's what it was. And uh, this gives us a few lessons about division and how it occurs. Here's one. When churches have division, whenever groups or nations divide, there's usually a, an ignorant hothead at the forefront. Sheba played that role in this story. Usually somebody who, instead of being a peacemaker, wants to stir things up. You can see that in almost every situation of divisiveness in any group. And that's why Paul is so adamant about getting on top of that in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. He says something like, and I paraphrase, after two or three warnings, don't have anything to do with a divisive person. If somebody is sowing seeds of discord in the church, the elders need to deal with that person, the concerned members need to deal with that person, and if he won't listen, he needs to go. Because God will not abide division among his people. A second idea. Division is so many times over tiny matters that have absolutely no significance. Is that not true? Uh, I think I've told you about a church that I worked with up in Indiana who split and finally just died out over the issue of whether a woman could baptize a woman. Now, they never had a woman who wanted to be baptized by a woman. The situation never came up. They had plenty of men there who could do the baptizing. But in a hypothetical situation that came up in class one day, they started debating it, and the debate turned into a months-long argument, a feud, and now there's no church there where there used to be a church. A needless argument. And that's how a lot of division happens in families and churches. Uh, that's how it happened here. This was all over who gets to lead David across the Jordan River. Now, did that really matter? What mattered is the king was back on his throne. That's what mattered. And so we see similarity there. Number three, whether it's division in Israel or in the church, God is displeased and greatly disappointed. There's a list of seven things the Lord hates in Proverbs chapter 6. And at the top of the list, item number seven, which according to the poetry that is being used there, that's the climactic point, is one who sows discord among his brothers. God doesn't like division. He, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the opposite of those who divide. Another thing is, division usually continues because of poor leadership and disregard for God's laws. This brings us back to the story a little bit. It's hard to unravel strife once it starts. And Joab, the army commander at this time, and David made a big mistake by not, as Barney Five says, nipping this in the bud. You know, they should have stopped it before it started. I'm sure they were very distracted by all the things that they had been doing, and they found some peace for just a moment and were enjoying that. But because they let their guard down, this needless argument wound up in dividing the nation again. That was already very fragile. And also notice that when Joab and his army caught up with Sheba, they began to besiege this town, Abel Bethmeacah, his safe haven. That's in verses 14 through 15. Sheba runs away from David's army and hides in this place, kind of like a city of refuge. And the law required 
uh, a commander like Joab to seek peace, to talk terms of peace. But the first thing that he does is uh, set up siege works and he gets ready to destroy the city. That violates Deuteronomy chapter 20 and the rules of engagement there. So I bring that example up because this is happening due to poor leadership and a failure to listen to God's commands. They weren't following uh, God's word here. Now, there's a glimmer of hope because we see from the story that division is usually cured by a person of wisdom. And thankfully, there was a woman who was very wise in the city of Abel, Abel Beth Maica. Look at uh, chapter 20, verse 16. And they are about to batter the wall down to destroy the city just to get Sheba out of there. And verse 16 says, A wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, talking about her own city. And so they settled a matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab said, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said, Behold, his head shall be thrown down to you over the wall. So they throw the guy's head over the wall. Joab's happy, and he leaves. Uh, so this woman, she knew what was required. You look at this, and there's several things that you see that she, she followed. In order to bring peace to a situation through wisdom, you must, first of all, be a person who seeks peace and pursues it, in the words of 1 Peter 3:11, She says, you know, this is a peaceable place. We're people who seek peace. You need to be courteous, gentle, and reasonable in your speech. You see how she spoke with Joab? She was obviously a, a wise person. She was being reasonable. She called the city a mother in Israel. Why would you destroy the heritage of the people of Israel? She got through to Joab with, with that reasonable approach. Try to ascertain the nature of any misunderstanding. She's Asking him questions, what do you need from us? What would make this go away? What's the need here? Attempt to remove any misconceptions. We're not at war with you, Joab. What do you need? And always be guided by what is right, realizing God's word is always right. And so that's an interesting little story uh, at the end of chapter 20. And we see here a giant disappointment that was saved from further disaster by this, the wisdom of this peaceful woman. All right, let's move on to another giant. This is the interesting part. Let's talk about physical giants. We know about Goliath, but there are a lot of other physical giants in 2 Samuel. There are four Philistine giants that are mentioned. I'll put this list up, and uh, we'll get to the the individual giants in a moment, but these giants were from Gath, the hometown of Goliath. And they, they were the Anakim, the sons of Anak. Anak had big boys. 
okay? So his sons and probably grandsons and family members further removed were large men. Goliath's stature is given at about nine and a half feet. Well, we meet some of his brothers and cousins and family members here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And uh, they're mentioned one by one. Uh, the first one on the list, you know, I have Goliath up there, who we know. But you go on down, and there's a, one mentioned in chapter 21, verse 16, Ishbi Benob. Uh, it says of Ishbi Benob that he was one of the descendants of the giants, the Anakim, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. You say, how much does that weigh? It's heavy, okay? I don't know how much that is, but it's heavy. And he was armed with a new sword, and he thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeriah, this is David's nephew. We've been reading a lot about him, the brother of Joab. He came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And uh, we'll talk more about that moment a little bit later. But Ishbi Benob, probably... You know, wanting David because of the death of his brother Goliath, he came after David and was saved by Abishai. Uh, there's another one named Saph. We encounter him in verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Uh, so you don't have a whole lot of information about him. And then we encounter another Goliath, according to 2119, Goliath the Gittite. Uh, he's called by a different name, I believe, in 1 Chronicles 20. Uh, this is Lami, L-A-H-M-I, in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And he's referred to as Goliath's brother there. The shaft of his spear is said to be like a weaver's beam. Uh, the beam on a loom was the part that you would use, I, I think, to, to push the fabric together to get it um, pushed down. I'm, I'm searching for a word here, uh, but you, you slammed it down against the work that you've done to kind of push the fabric together and keep it straight. And so these were rather large, and he's talking about a large loom, not something your kid would play with, but a professional commercial-sized loom. This is a very large weapon that he wielded. And that was just a way to illustrate how big this man was. Uh, another one on the list, unnamed, was a giant with six fingers and six toes. And this is a really interesting one. Uh, verse 20, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. So he's really good at math. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Physical giants. Uh, David's mighty men conquered them despite their menacing size. They were the opposite of the spies and the people of Canaan generations before in the days of Moses. 
when they first went in to take the promised land, you remember what they said. They identified the giants in the land, and they said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And they were afraid and didn't want to follow God's command to go in and take the promised land. They didn't believe God's promises that he would give it to them. These were men who were of different caliber. They knew they could succeed, and they were brave, and the size wasn't what mattered to them because God was on their side. It's foolish for the strong man to boast in his strength. These giants were very boastful, but they lost the battle. And uh, we can get really intimidated by our world and the giant challenges we face. There's so many people on the other side. We get very intimidated. And that's when we need to remember stories like this, where people face giants with faith and prevailed. We can prevail just like they did. I take you back to something we noticed in 1 Samuel 17, where David fights Goliath. You know, the only miracle, it's not even a miracle, the only unusual thing in the story is the size of the opponent. There's no miracle involved in David's killing Goliath. There's just great faith. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that when we start to become afraid and intimidated by the world we are in. So physical giants. Let's go on to a different type of giant. And this is on the good side of the ledger, giants in character, or men with giant character. David had some giants in his service. They were called the mighty men. And uh, you see them in chapter 23. Go over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. There's a list that starts in verse 8 of 37 mighty men in his service. Uh, 37, but three are ranked higher among the rest. There were three that were the best, the most valiant, the bravest perhaps, the most skilled at warfare. I think it may be intentional as you go through this chapter to see the last one in the list, verse 39. Who's the last of the 37 mentioned? Uriah the Hittite. What do you think that could mean? Just a reminder, right, of how David had been disloyal to Uriah. A little subtle jab at David or a reminder that I'm sure stung him that Uriah had been faithful to him. And nothing more is said, just his being at the end of the list seems intentional to me. Uh, we don't have time to go over all 37 of these. We don't have a whole lot of information about them, but I'll pick out a few and uh, talk about their exploits because there's some really interesting things in this chapter. We'll talk about the three greatest, who are the first three mentioned. Uh, in verse 8, we're introduced to Joshua. Bathshebeth, a Talcumanite. He was chief of the three, it says. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. He killed 800 people in war and one battle. Uh, he must have been a very skilled warrior. All he had, it says, was a spear. He was someone who was able to do much with little. And there's a lesson there, right? There are some people who do much with much. There are some who do little with little. 
There's some who do little with much, and then there's some like this greatest of the mighty men who do much with little. And uh, maybe that's you. You don't have to do what the other person is doing. God has given you a talent. He's given you an opportunity. He's put something in your hand. Look at what you do have and do the best you can with it. You might be surprised at how far you can go with that little bit. We have lots of examples in the New Testament of people who did much with little. Uh, the widow with two mites. Um, the church, churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 who gave out of their poverty and um, supported the, the people who were hungry in Judea. Lots of examples of that. You could even say Christ himself, who grew up in Nazareth, did much with very little on his side from a worldly point of view. So the first man there, Josheb Bashabeth, uh, the chief of the three. Next to him, verse 9, was Eleazar. He was also one of the three. He was a man who fought unrelentingly. Let's see what it says about him in verse 9. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Have you ever worked so hard... Uh, maybe with a hammer or some tool in your hand. Uh, it works so long and hard that your hand gets frozen or you get writer's cramp. He had fought so hard that his sword stuck to his hand. This was a man who wouldn't give up. He wouldn't, he, he stood his ground and he was unrelenting and brought about a great victory. Next to him was a mighty man named Shammah. He's the third of the top three. And uh, we read about him in verse 11. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Ag, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. That's the cement plant over here. <laughs> I was listening to this in the car today, and I thought, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that? Oh, yeah, I think that's the name of our cement plant. But it's spelled differently here. Uh, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. So he's in this bean patch and everybody runs away. But he stands his ground. You can see the, the lesson in that, right? Sometimes you have to stand up for what's right, and you'll have to stand alone. But God rewards those who stand up for what is right. Shammah was an example of someone who did that. Some others who weren't in the top three, but were also mighty men. Uh, we have studied a lot about Abishai. There's more about him in verses 18 and 19. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, that Zariah was uh, David's sister, was chief of the thirty, 
And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So there's some kind of ranking system here that's going on. He was head of the 30, and uh, I think it's interesting. He killed 300 men, but David's like, that's good, but you're not top three because... The number one guy killed 800 men, so he got 500 to go. Uh, but he was a mighty warrior, and we've read a lot about Abishai and his loyalty to David. Um, his, he, as it says, he was Joab's brother and fought alongside David throughout his whole uh, career here. Uh, then there's Benaiah. Now, Benaiah is my favorite he did three great things. So look at it, verse 20. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. So we're going to read about three in quick succession. I, th I just want to know the whole story behind these, but he just lists them so quickly. Number one, he struck down two aerials of Moab. What is an aerial? I have a footnote in my Bible, so I eagerly look down at the footnote, and it says, the meaning of Ariel is unknown. <laughs> now, maybe there's some other translations. Does anybody have something there instead of Ariel? Lion-like men of Moab. So it could have been some mighty warriors. Um, is that... Mightiest warriors... So, it wouldn't have been mentioned if this was an easy battle. He struck two things down that were really intimidating. That was his first exploit. Secondly, and this is why I like Benaiah, he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So you got three things against you. You're in a pit. It's full of slick snow. And oh, here comes a lion. And it's cold. And it's cold. There's four things. You know, what, a, what an amazing person to be able to do that. And then the third one, he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. I imagine this Egyptian... Uh, strutted around kind of like Goliath and taunted people and was very physically impressive. But you see, Benaiah was not intimidated in the least. Benaiah comes up later in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, and he takes over commander of the army for King Solomon and does a lot for David's son Solomon. These mighty men teach us some great lessons. Let's look at this. They were men who responded to the desires of their captain without a command. Uh, Jesus, of course, is our captain. And uh, we should learn his desires and respond accordingly. Not having to have necessarily a thou shalt do this specifically for everything, but know him so well that we can fulfill his desires not just his commands. There were men who risked their lives for their captain. 
we have to take risks. We live in a country where we're free to worship as we please. Other Christians live in other parts of the world that are more dangerous, but we're fearful about rejection and being mocked and ridiculed and losing friendships and things like that. And we need to show more bravery. And these mighty men uh, are examples of that. And so I don't have time, unfortunately, to go over the whole list, and we don't know a whole lot about the others. I went over the ones that we have details about, but these are very interesting stories of these mighty men who were giants in character. Now let's look at David himself. I should have put that up there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Were mighty because of their own deeds necessarily, but God was working through them, and so it's probably the reason why they were mighty. That's a good point, and that's why they were able to prevail in impossible odds. I mean, they were impossible odds, but they had God on their side. That's a good point. Anything else? Anybody else want to make a comment? Yeah, Bob. Also, men, not the you know. That's right. Yes, uh, if we look around us, God has put who we need around us to help. And uh, He wants us to, to lean on one another. That's a good point. Thank you, Bob. Let's talk about David. He was a giant in his own time. There's a little story here in chapter 21 I skipped over. We started into it, and I said we'd come back to it. But let's look at chapter 21, verse 15 and following. There's war again against the Philistines. David went down. This giant, Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, uh, he was armed with a new sword and he thought to kill David, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed him. And then David's men have a talk with him. They swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp. Of Israel. So David was, he started out as a great warrior. Commentators think he's a little over 60 years old at this time. Uh, for soldiers back in those days, that was old. He was getting slower, his reaction time was slower. I'm sure all the battles he'd been in, his body was sore, he probably had injuries that slowed him down. And they were basically saying, your heart is more important to Israel than your sword. And we're not going to put you out on the battlefield again to risk your life. Because we need our lamp. Now, I've said this before, but a king at any time, especially a king of Israel, is successful only so far as he is transparent to the upper king, the ultimate king, God. As long as people could see God through David, he was successful. Whenever he became opaque and people saw only David, well, that's when he began to fail. And I think that imagery of lamp is, is very important in that regard. Uh, in the next chapter, David, we have David's song of deliverance. It's like one of the Psalms. And I want you to notice a part of it in verse 29. This is 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine. You are my lamp, O Lord, 
and my God lightens my darkness. That's why David was able to be a lamp. Because God was his lamp. And all he was doing was serving as a lens through which God's light was focused. Again, look at his final words in chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 4, he speaks of God saying, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David was a lamp to Israel because people could see God through him. And that's what makes a leader a good leader. And we need um, strong hands in the kingdom of God. We need talented people. We need workers. We need singers. We need, we need all kinds of servants. We need teachers. But none of that is going to be effective without our lamps. And when a church turns its back on its older people, on the wisdom of their, of their congregation, it's sealed its death notice. It's doomed. We have to have wisdom among us. We need leaders. And so David's men were wiser than him in this regard, telling him, look, we can't risk losing you. We can lose one of us. We can't lose you. And it was in that sense that uh, David was a great giant. Uh, there's another event I think we have time to look at. Yeah, go ahead, Jim. The circumstances have changed. He's yeah. an older man now. Well, you know, his heart was in a different place. You know, he was wanting to go to battle, and they're saying, don't. Whereas the other thing, he had a totally different heart at that time before with Bathsheba. In chapter 23, there's an interesting story we'll close the class with. Uh... Chapter 23, 13, three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. That's where he grew up in Bethlehem. And he was getting nostalgic for the past and he was very thirsty and Oh, I wish I could have a drink of water from that well. Well, when you're around these guys, you've got to be careful what you say if you're David. Because if they just overhear it, they're going to go get you what you long for. And so sure enough, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now it's more to show their bravery and valor than, than David's. But you see a little bit of David's attitude. Now if I was one of those guys and went to all that, it would be hard to see him pour it out on the ground, right? But he did it 
as an offering to the Lord, and I think they understood that as, as a sacrifice to God, and I'm assuming God accepted that as, as worship. David was a great leader in that he was getting people to look at God. And that drink offering, if you want to call it that, is a way to tell the men, look, I appreciate what you're doing, but this isn't about me. It's about God. And at the times where David was a big failure, it's when he wasn't doing that, when he, people couldn't see God through him. But when he became translucent to the ultimate king, and God's light was showing through him as a lamp, that's when David was successful. That's the kind of leaders we need today is those through whom people can see the love and the light of God. Uh, so, all kinds of giants tonight. Physical giants, giant disappointments, giant character, giants in character, and David as a giant himself. And uh, I appreciate all your comments and everything tonight, but that's all the time that we have.